you know, I was selling, at least at the time that um, Get Rich or Die Trying came out, I was a sophomore. The economics made perfect sense. Never the aspirations to actually play, but in terms of selling and distributing and trying to be the knowledge base, that was me. Hey guys, welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host, Jason, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Rutger, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode, we speak with Dan Runcie, the founder of the business hip hop culture media company, Trapital. Launching in early 2018, Trapital began as a subscription-based newsletter, but now provides also a podcast and a free weekly memo focusing on the business strategy of hip hop, talking about topics like Beyonce's streaming strategy, how the hip hop's indie community has taken off and how Tyler, the creator, built a cult-like following. Trapital's readers are music executives, media moguls, and venture capitalists with clientele like Translation CEO Steve Stout and SoundCloud CEO Mike Weissman. Trapital also offers advisory and speaking services. Prior to running Trapital full-time, the San Francisco-based RunC has a background in market analysis and business strategy, while also spending several years as a freelance writer for publications such as Wired and Complex. He graduated cum laude in marketing and finance at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut and earned an MBA from the University of Michigan. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Dan Runcie. Hey, what's up, Dan? What's up, guys? Jason, Rucker, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. You know, you have so much content on the internet. You are the opposite of Daniel Day-Lewis. You have podcasts, you have video interviews, you have written so many articles, but we want to start out with something really basic. And that question is why music? You're a Bay Area guy rubbing elbows with venture capitalists. And to me, music has been known to some uh, of that crowd as the complicated redheaded stepchild uh, of, of venture capital. So why not, why not automated cars or, or food delivery apps? Uh, great question. And first of all, I do love Daniel Day-Lewis. I feel like he's almost the content dream in some ways, though, if you think about it, right? You can put out one big movie, like, boom, there will be blood, and people will talk about that piece of content for decades long. Would love to get to that point at some point. But in the meantime, I'm putting out content pretty regularly about the business of hip-hop. And for me, I chose music, and I chose hip-hop specifically, because this was something that meant a lot to me personally, because I had grown up in many ways, idolizing and looking up to the hip hop stars and how they were making moves, how they were making a name for themselves in an industry that didn't necessarily respect them and in a broader society that didn't respect them either. And seeing the heights and the success that they've been able to achieve in my lifetime has been pretty remarkable. And it's so fascinating to see now what was once looked down upon is now become the dominant culture and influences so much in so many different ways. And that is something that I've seen specific with hip hop that some of that may exist in other genres of music, but it didn't necessarily hit and resonate in the same type of way. So by being able to cover this space, it was an opportunity to really highlight and break down a lot of the stories in the same type of ways of other industries. I know you had mentioned automated cars earlier and some of those other things. In some ways, some of that became the inspiration to want to do something like Trapital because you had seen all these newer industries emerging that were also getting the same type of deep, rich analysis that you would see in a Wall Street Journal, you would see in a Harvard Business Review, or even the time when I was in 
business school, we would break down all these deep case studies on all these other topics of any other industry. But the ones that were specific about hip hop and the business leaders are making some of the same strategic decisions and thinking through the same trade-offs, it was just much fewer and farther between. And I remember one time when I was in business school, there was a case study that it came out from Harvard Business School about Beyonce and her surprise album drop that she had done in 2013. And the headline had made waves everywhere. Like there was a Beyonce case study. It made so many headlines for a few reasons. One, it was a great lesson in the power of marketing and how someone like her using her platform to do something differently, but also made headlines because you didn't see something like that that frequently. You didn't see it from Harvard and you didn't see it from other publications talking about someone like Beyonce making the same moves and giving her the same level of analysis that they would give to a Coca-Cola case study, or they would give to a New York Times case study from some of their business challenges. And when I saw that, it was a reminder to me to say, hey, there's something here and people are interested in this when it's done well. And this has been a passion point of yours for so long, but you never actually worked in this industry. Take a stab, see what happens. And I decided to write. I started my own Medium blog where I was just posting some thoughts and writing some articles and essays on topics related to the business of hip hop, the business of culture. And as things slowly started to expand, it started to grow where I was started to do freelance writing for different publications that had seen my writing and wanted me to write for them. It became a nice little side hustle while I was still working full time. But then as it continued to grow and there was interest, I realized, hey, there's a little bit of a convergence happening here where the business of hip hop is continuing to get more and more popular because it's not just Beyonce's, it's the B level artists, it's the C level artists that are making great moves. And there's also this wave of what's happening in digital media right now where there are smaller companies that are leveraging the power of the internet to have a lower cost run operation that is focused on a particular niche. And by being able to leverage the fact that there are millions and billions of people that use the internet every day, it is, po it is possible to find the people that this information will benefit and will be able to serve them in a way that makes sense the same way that, as I mentioned before, the Wall Street Journal has other industries that rely on it heavily. And that was really the inspiration for starting Trapital. And yeah, I started it almost three years ago now as a side project, something to explore and quickly started to expand and grow from there. We also wanted to get into, you know, when did you first meet hip hop, so to speak? You know, what was your growing up like? And, you know, when was, is there any kind of seminal album or, or artists that you kind of first met that kind of turned you on to hip hop in general? Yeah, the first artist, and it's funny because it isn't an artist that I would say I was necessarily the biggest fan of at the time, but the first artist was LL Cool J. And it was when he had, well, there's a few things. One, I remember when Mama Said Knock You Out came out, I was still quite young at the time, but I remember hearing it. But it was actually several years later when he had released Doing It. And that was, that song was so big, that album, the record behind that was so big. And that was really my first exposure to seeing, okay, these people are doing their thing. And I'm now at an age where I'm just understanding culture beyond what I see on um, you know, Nickelodeon or some other cartoons that I may have been watching at six or seven, but seeing what's also happening on MTV or watching my, over my older brother's shoulder while he's watching this stuff. That is when it really started to stick out to me. So it was LL Cool J. And I think there was just a closest there because I had grew up in Hartford, uh, Connecticut. So 
not too far away from New York, but so much of the cultural influence from what we had taken in from, um, you know, the greater Hartford area was from artists in New York and just given the amount of power and hip hop they had at the time. So seeing them led to following Bad Boy when they were getting more and more popular and truly being able to follow the rise of Biggie and Mason Puffy when they were doing their thing. That was really the entry point for hip hop. So it was kind of this like, wow, these guys are cool. What are they doing? I know this cartoon stuff is all right. What's going on Nickelodeon, but these guys are cool. And that just started me down a rabbit hole from there. So I have a sister. She, uh, she was dating this guy. He was like, the bad, he was like the bad influence. And he brought Midnight Marauders, Trap Called Quest album, lent it to her. And I stole it for a week. She was super pissed at me because like she, she was crushing on this guy. And I was like, I need to listen to this. It just like blew my mind. I feel like that, that moment that happens is like such a seminal moment for so many people, even if it's not hip hop, you know, if it's punk music or what have you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess, how old were you when you uh, peeped the Midnight Marauders album? I was, um, I must've been in like fifth or sixth grade. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so, so right around that age, cause I feel like middle school is normally that point where like whatever music comes out then becomes this formative music for your upbringing and how you just look and see things differently. Did you ever have aspirations of being an artist yourself? It wasn't, to be honest. I feel like I went through every other phase of those things where I had wanted to be in the NBA or wanted to be a professional athlete at different stages, but no, never really thought too deeply about music itself. It's a bit ironic because I had started piano lessons when I was quite young, but so much of the training at the time was classical. So I felt like even though I started at like age eight or nine, by the time I was 12, I really didn't want to play anymore. I wanted to do other stuff. So it really wasn't something I'd considered seriously. I mean, it was funny because friends would always gather around and people would try to freestyle or people would try to do this or that. And, you know, I would participate just for fun, but like I never had anything close. And even then, just hearing some of my other friends, just how quick they were off the riff, being able to come up with rhymes or come up with this or that, I knew that I was never going to be on that level. So in some ways, I didn't even try to that extent. I almost stuck myself more to being the person that was more of the curator or more of the person that either had the knowledge base to put all together. So it's kind of ironic how that aspect came because in high school, I was one of the people that was a bit embarrassed to say this now, but I was one of the people that was burning CDs and selling them to friends and making more money from that than I was off of paper routes and all the other, other jobs I'd had at the time. And almost taking, not, not just selling the CDs, but taking almost a bit of pride in the artwork of being able to like have a perfectly printed out album cover that matches whatever the actual one is. And then being able to be like, oh, when I'm selling it to someone, oh no, this um, Get Rich or Die Trying album right here, this is from Shady Aftermath. You have to understand this record label's history. So it was kind of this nerd culture thing that I got into, but people bought into it for a few reasons because you know, I was selling, at least at the time that um, Get Rich or Die Trying came out, I was a sophomore in high school and I was selling it for $5 a pop. And for me, it was just the economics made perfect sense because it was like, okay, go to Walmart, goodbye, the whole spindle of blank CDs, go sell them to friends. And, you know, that I, I only have to sell a couple CDs and I made the money's worth from all of that, right? But then two years later, um, Get Rich or Die Trying, um, had the follow-up because 50 Cent had dropped The Massacre. And around the same time, the game had dropped uh, the documentary album. So I was selling CDs again around that go around and ended up selling them for a little bit cheaper that time, just because Burners and um, Napster and all that was just a bit more 
deep within culture. So I had to lower the prices a little bit, but yeah, I'd say that was more my role in music early on in life. So never the aspirations to actually play, but in terms of selling and distributing and trying to be the knowledge base, that was me. So I got to ask, so did you do the album art for some of those burn CDs? Because one of my favorite parts of Trapital are these illustrations that I think you do yourself, right? I do. Yeah, <laughs> I do the illustrations myself. Um, yeah, so it's... um. <laughs> It's funny looking back. I, I wish I could say that I was doing album art for those, but no, I wasn't. The closest thing I got to doing any type of album art was I actually went to buy one of those thinner Sharpie pens that had like the thin point on them. So then I could try to write the album cover title and artist name in fancier letters or something to help it kind of stand out from someone else that would just write in some big block letters like jay-z the black album right i feel like i wanted mine to look a little bit more polished it was not nearly as polished i would say as the artwork that i do for trapital for the drawings for particular things but maybe there were some early elements there that have catered and lend itself to what i'm doing now i love it um, and so, so since then, you've worked in a lot of different fields. So uh, after you left school, you've worked in ed tech, fintech, um, even with a major commercial airline after getting your MBA. How, what, where was your mind at at that point in your career? Were you already kind of thinking like, hey, I kind of I miss music, I'm going to do something with music? Or were you kind of full on in that world and were planning to stay in that world at the time? Yeah, at the time, the idea and the thought of having a career even related to music had gone out the window and to, in some ways it really was never in the forefront because even after i was doing everything in high school it was still like oh but you know this isn't going to be the full-time job like what does this lead to like you know working at like fye or sam goody the places that were selling the cds i was like okay that's like a summer job but no so i i i saw myself taking a bit more of the traditional route after i graduated college i was working as an analyst for an insurance company then i went to business school in business school at an internship at an airline and then after that was um had worked um quick internship for um, a venture philanthropy firm that was focused on ed tech investments. And then that led me to working in ed tech. And in a lot of ways, I thought that was going to be the full-time path. That's why I moved to San Francisco. That's why I had went to school because I knew there was this emerging trend. I knew there was something I was interested in and it made more practical sense from that perspective. So yeah, I would say honestly, up until I'd say a few years in of writing freelance, that was the path I thought that I was going to continue going down. And me starting writing on the side was more something of a complete hobby. I was like, you know, I see there's this thing, medium people aren't just, it's not just like the blog era where there were some great hip hop work happening, but much more of it was on like breaking and leveraging the internet to try to break music. And but there was a bit more of the think pieces and thought leadership aspects of, of the writing that was happening. I think you saw a little bit of this with sites like Grantland that I think had a mix of that, like ed, what I call that edutainment mix of you could learn something new, but they're also trying to be informative. And I was like, OK, I think there's something here with the way the hip hop can be talked about. And that really was the impetus for me to start pushing it there. So yeah, even as I was doing writing on the medium page and doing freelancing on the side, I still thought it was something that would have been more of a, of, of a side hobby. It really wasn't until I started to see other people that at least had a 
a bit of a command of a space the same way that I was doing and the type of opportunities they were having beyond that and comparing that to what I felt like my potential was with the career that I was doing in ed tech and, and, and um, the future career path I could have been on there. I said to myself, hey, this is something that I'm really interested in, something really passionate about. And now I have a better idea about how a business can be built around this. And it's going to take a lot of time. It would take a lot of work. But if I give it a go now, I know enough about the wave and the trend where we can make something happen. On the other hand, everything that I've kind of built up in my career to this point, that isn't going anywhere. I have those skills. I will be able to have those opportunities. And let's say if I leave the job path I'm on, it doesn't work out with what I'm doing. And I want to go back into the quote unquote corporate world or go back into the more standard tech world where I'm either finding a um, you know, a high level individual contributor role or a middle manager role where I am working in a strategic partnership or business development phase, those jobs will be there. I can do that. So it was kind of weighing the pros and cons. And I said, you know what, this is the opportunity. This is the time to do it. And you have something here. And this was after years of people telling me like, hey, you know, I know you have this ed tech thing going on, but you really have something here with what you're doing on the side. You should really put both feet in. And for a while, I was just like, oh, you're just saying that, you know, because you assume it's your friends. They're always trying to like build you up and find other opportunities. But it really started to sink in when the people that started reaching out and saying those things weren't my friends and it was other people and not to be in this aspect of like, oh, you know, your friends don't have the validity, but I think sometimes you have to hear things many times for it to sink in. And that's what had done it for me. And I think since then, that's when it was slowly building the blocks to, to start Trapital. All your dreams, kids. Um, so one of the things we really like to do, like for, you know, when, when our team like works on like our, our blog about like music data, we, we'd like to really try to match it up with what's going on in like music culture um, and not even just music culture, but just kind of culture in general. Cause of course, you know, any one of the arts, you know, is an expression um, of kind of people and, and identity and all these kind of like soft things, uh, if you will. So a lot of your skills, you know, seem in, to have come from, you know, market analysis, risk management, price modeling. And yet you do such a, you definitely kind of weave those things with um, black culture and hip hop. How do you navigate those worlds? Because they're, they're difficult. Any one of them is difficult for someone to, to kind of move around in, but to kind of meld them together, I think um, what's proven that it's, it's really special. So how do you think about that um, and that kind of dichotomy? Yeah. And thanks for recognizing that aspect, because I think that's where some of the past experience does come in, because it's easy to look at the background and be like, oh, well, who is this person? They never worked in this industry formally. They never did X, Y, and Z. But in some ways, being able to leverage the ability to understand pricing models, understand risk and trade-offs, there are each different element of my career in the past where that had um, that was a pretty big factor. I mean, the first job we had, it was the first job I had was working for an insurance company working specifically in um, auto and home insurance. And you're trying to find innovative ways to get, a, get ahead of the competitors beyond you know, just having some clever commercial. You're trying to use pricing and how do you set the best rates and have the most innovative packages that can get a one up there. It does force you to think creatively in a space where you may be heavily bound by regulation or other challenges. Um, and in some ways, it was similar working in airline industry too, where it was also quite, quite bound by a lot of regulations and unions and other things that are just different business challenges. How do you find a way to introduce something that can truly either 
A, be a cost savings or be a growth opportunity. And by being able to go through that and just think through the same framework, being able to help apply that, not just to artists, but also how this landscape is changing was a pretty big, was a pretty big help too. And that I think was a base for a lot of how I thought. So over time, it was two things, right? It was taking just the broader understanding of how industry dynamics work and wh what does it look like from analyzing your competitors, analyzing your customers and analyzing other market dynamics. But then as I was able to research a lot of these stories, I picked topics where it forced me to have understandings of things that I just didn't have a deep understanding of before, because there were certain dynamics of the record label industry that were unique to it, that were different even than other areas of entertainment. So by being able to force myself to do that, it was able to give me a better understanding and in many ways, truly being vulnerable as well to be like, hey, can you help better explain this to me? I'm not sure I necessarily get this topic or having conversations with people where they are a willing to have the conversations because I, it's interesting, even though I know that I definitely write from a point of view and in many ways, from a point of authority from how I'm thinking about the world or how I'm thinking about things, all of that is valid and true, but I still in some ways hesitate from the quote unquote expert label of things because I find, I think of myself more so as someone that's more continuously trying to learn and understand how the dynamic is changing. And in many ways, writing is an opportunity to go even deeper on a topic that I think I know a good amount about, but I can even go deeper on as well. So by being able to, I think, just apply some of the broader business analysis and skills and understanding and just how it's worked in so many areas and that whether it's a startup or it's a Dow 30 company, Having that experience and understanding has also been helpful, whether it's thinking about, okay, how do you come up or think about the best way for an artist who is one of the top five biggest artists in the world or someone who's just starting out and being able to have that balance, I think has been effective, but also understanding the trade-offs too. So it's something that I'm you know, grateful for from that experience too. And I try to keep that as a focus in terms of how I'm looking and evaluating different things. So now that we're on the uh, topic of business, let's talk about business of hip hop, which is what Trapital is all about. Um, so I want to start off with a more sort of, I don't know, philosophical question about the nature of hip hop and the nature of the hip hop artist as business person. So I have my own take on this, but I'm wondering if you could explain in your eyes why hip hop artists seem to have a better sense of the business of music and also a more active role in it than in a lot of other genres. Obviously, there are exceptions, but it seems like hip-hop artists really laid the groundwork for this sort of bootstrapped DIY ethos. And importantly, it spawned a number of music moguls. So what is it about hip-hop that made the business side so important for the music? Yeah, I think it stems from a few things. First, artists themselves have not necessarily always gotten the fairest shake from the powers that be in the in the music industry. We know that there have been challenges with how record label deals have been structured in the past 
or how artists may have either wanted to have ownership of certain assets or felt like agreements weren't necessarily always fulfilled upon and so on. But in a lot of ways, hip hop was had gotten hit a lot worse than other industry than other genres of music did. And over time, when that happens, and I think I'll add too, even if they, and that's even if they are, get the opportunity to get the deal in the first place, right? Like I think about an op, uh, instance like Jay-Z in his days when he was trying to start um, Rockefeller Records and he couldn't even get a deal. So one of the reasons he started Rockefeller Records was because he knew that, okay, well, we're going to have to start this on our own because we may not necessarily get the opportunity to do it ourselves. So it's the challenge to even get through the gatekeepers. But then even if you get lucky enough to get through the gatekeepers, are you going to be taken care of and supported within the organization? In some ways, it's not too different from how you think of a lot of diversity and inclusion efforts in corporate America throughout the country today, right? One, there's a gap of being able to even have the um, pipeline of people who are underrepresented minorities coming in to join these organizations. But once they join the organizations, what happens? Are they getting the same level of support? Are they getting the necessary tools they need to be able to truly succeed? It doesn't necessarily always happen that way. So I think because that dynamic is similar in music and people do get burned by that, they're more likely to feel empowered to be like, okay, well, that's what's happening. We need to start our own. We need to have our own support system. So because so many hip hop artists as well are black, there's a lot of this that extends too. It's not just this hip hop empowerment, it's this broader black economic empowerment aspect in you. I think people listening heard so much about this this past summer 2020 with everything that happened after George Floyd's murder. It was how can companies and all of these organizations help support economic empowerment? And it's because so much of it was limited. So when you see someone like a Jay-Z or Beyonce or whoever in hip hop that is truly trying to stake their own or talking about ownership, it comes from that place. And the fact that they in many ways were under-indexed in terms of the support and the recognition that they should have been getting over time, whether it was not getting as much play on pop radio when they clearly had some of the biggest records in the world, or they weren't getting the fairest opportunities from promoters to perform in venues that they could fill because promoters were scared that there was going to be fights, even though rock concerts have, you know, mosh pits and all these other dangerous activities. So all of those things that left them under-indexed, when they actually were able to start off on their own, they had more than enough proof to show that they had the success and they had the opportunity to back everything that we're saying. And when you're able to see the success of that, it's kind of like, okay, well, if I just did this myself, then what do I need that record label deal for? Why do I need to do this or that? And by being able to see the difference there, it then puts you either A, in an opportunity to continue doing it your own way, or B, if you choose to do it with them, you're going to come in with a higher point of leverage so that you can get the type of deal or get the opportunity that's going to work better in your favor. And I think this has worked for the most part well in terms of the changing of the narrative for hip hop. I think there's still a lot of work to continue to go, but I just don't think you see it as much in other genres because they just didn't necessarily have to deal with some of those same challenges to that same aspect. Totally agree. So turning the lens back to you and Trapital again, you've recently pivoted from a freemium sort of subscriber-based revenue model to more like consulting, turning down uh, VC money along the way, I should say. 
so to my mind, major labels function similarly to VC firms in terms of like betting on unicorns and having that pay for like the failed bets. Obviously, the analogy breaks down eventually, but there's something to be said there. With that in mind, what lessons have you learned from your own experience with these different models? And can any of that be extrapolated out to artists? Yeah, I definitely think so. Because I think for me, I had launched a paid membership program for Trapital pretty early on. This was I would say probably about 12, 14 months after I started Trapital, and it was purely as a test out project at the time. And I think in a lot of ways, it came from two aspects. One, it was excitement. And two, it was like, okay, well, I just put two feet in. I want to go full time into this thing. Yes, I do have some money saved up, but all right, what, never better late than never. Why not start a rev- another revenue stream to get some money coming in? And it was a membership program where I was charging either a month or $100 a year, and people would get additional content during the week. That was more of the timely things that were happening in the business of hip hop. So I was writing one longer form essay a week that was on a deep topic. And then the stuff during the week was more, boom, here's my thoughts on the latest news that happened. Here's my thoughts on this X, Y, and Z. And for me, it was a few things. It wasn't that the model itself couldn't work. It just wasn't the best position for me and the type of business that I wanted to run. I think this for a few reasons. One, I realized that there were plenty of other ways that I could monetize the business that I was building through Trapital beyond just doing a paid subscription model. Because at the time I was really inspired by what Ben Thompson had built, who runs the Stratechery newsletter. And, you know, it's now a business that he does. And he, you know, was very successful at what he's writing and covering the business of tech. Of course, there's a few differences with the business of hip hop. But for me, my time and anyone's time is quite limited as an entrepreneur. So if I, any time that I was either trying to focus on converting or writing good content that was behind my paywall to try to convert readers was time that I wasn't spent just trying to grow the overall brand recognition of Trapital. One of the things I talk about often is the concept of a sales funnel and where things fall in terms of where it is on your funnel. Either A, what are you doing to get overall awareness of who you are? So you could either have whether it's more awareness on social media and then leads to more um, email subscribers, which then leads to more podcast listeners, XYZ, which could then lead to either people that are paying for a product, whether it is a newsletter, freemium content or client consultants or sponsors, X, Y, and Z. And by only spending time on trying to convert the few people that I had already had on the email list to become paid subscribers. I think I was losing out on opportunity to just spread the word and the awareness of, hey, I just started this company that's doing this really cool thing about the business of hip hop. Come learn more. I'm putting out free content. So for me, it wasn't just a shift away from doing the paid model because I realized that the money that I was getting through that at the time just wasn't going to be worthwhile in the long run, at least to the scale that I was running at. But it was me as like, hey, if my time is limited, at least in the early stages, I need to do as much as possible to help just spread the overall awareness and get the word out there. So that's essentially what I did. And I mean, the change happened now 
say about like eight, nine months ago. And since then, the newsletter audience has grown quite a bit. The newsletter is much longer. There's more podcast listeners. There's a bigger following on social media. And I want to continue pushing that because I think in a lot of ways, I'm still offering something that is quite new and unique out there, whether it is the quick tidbits on, hey, this is some deal that Tyler, the creator just did, or it's be here's a deep dive on why Tyler, the creator is a cult, why he built a cult following. So by being able to make that shift, I think makes a big difference. And in terms of the second part of the question, you ask, how does it relate to artists and some of the stuff they do? Uh, yeah, I think there's a ton of relatability there because in some ways artists know that they have fans, but they also know that they're trying to do their best to both cultivate their most loyal fans, but in many ways, they also have to grow their overall awareness and their growth, right? You take someone like J. Cole, he may still need to go on all the late night shows or other things to go promote his album when it comes out, but he also knows that he has these people that know all the words to his classic mixtapes like The Warm Up and Friday Night Lights and all of those. So making sure that he has enough time to do both of those is so valuable. And I think for someone that was just a bit more limited early on, you really need to be quite focused about your time. So at the time, it was more valuable for me to spend more time at the top of my funnel, raising the overall awareness, as opposed to um, trying to super serve the people that were already bought in, but maybe having this relatively cheap product wasn't the best way to do it. And the more and more I talk to people, that's when people have reached out either wanting to pick my brain or get my advice on how best to support their business, how best I can either provide a lending hand or support in some ways. So being able to have a consulting and advisory arm of what I do made a ton of sense. So on a related note, you've written a lot about like the business strategies of huge artists like Travis Scott or Rihanna or Beyonce. Um, what can independent or smaller scale artists either glean from that or maybe you have some insights uh, beyond that that they can take from you to help them reach sustainable music career status? Yeah, I think there's a few things. The, the tough thing with it is that the independent artist landscape has changed and it's changed quite a bit. So even if I'm taking someone that is at the highest levels of, let's say, uh, Chance the Rapper or a Russ, and you're breaking down what they had done in order to get to the heights that they had got it, even just in terms of a successful hip hop artist who is independent, they were doing this in the mid 2010s and even to some extent, the early 2010s, the landscape of everything from the tools that artists are using and how social media works and how to put your name out there has just changed so much that it needs to adapt pretty regularly. So even sometimes the lessons that they share aren't always going to be the most relevant from a tactical perspective, but I do think that there are timeless principles that can apply. So. Yes, if you're an independent artist and you're reading an essay that I put out and you're reading the story about Beyonce, her decision and the impact of her doing Coachella probably isn't going to be as relevant for you because your opportunity to headline Coachella probably is going to come anywhere anytime soon. However, are there aspects of how she goes about things, whether it is how she chose to have a team around her, how she goes to make an event out of the big things that she do that she does 
you still have opportunities to make events out of your album releases or out of your digital opportunities. Who can you collab with? Like her going on to go collaborate at a Super Bowl. You may not be at the Super Bowl with Coldplay or Bruno Mars, but there may be an opportunity to still have someone like that. So there's still helpful elements like that. So to start to wrap up and, and look like ahead towards like the future of hip hop, you know, what's the next frontier do you, do you see for the genre? I mean, from our side, we've, we've talked to someone who's in the middle of like a trap movement in Argentina. And, you know, you read about things about rappers becoming popular in, in India. Is hip hop pop at this point? Um, is it not in some ways? You know, is there a saturation point for hip hop like there has been for other genres or is it just kind of a part of our norm and from for time to come? Where where do you kind of see hip hop going in the next like 10 years if you had to kind of make a forecast? Yeah, I don't think that there's necessarily a saturation. And I think it's a common question that get a, gets asked because people often think, OK, well, rock and roll was dominant for so long and now rock and roll is no longer the mainstream. What happened? Or even within black music, R&B was huge, but R&B necessarily isn't as big as that was. And I think it's a little different because we're seeing a few things. One, from a global perspective, hip hop is still in some ways decades earlier in certain countries where hip hop artists are being really influential in terms of using their voice to speak out on issues that are happening, whether it's an artist that is in the Middle East and they're using their platform to speak out of something happening in the government. That is kind of similar to what you saw with Public Enemy, for instance, and what they were doing in the late 80s and early 90s. So yeah, it's that so we're seeing it in the international perspective where there's still a couple of decades behind where we are now. So naturally that's going to expand. But I think because as hip hop itself has just continued to grow and change certain things and aspects of hip hop that we thought were quote unquote dead or not popular as much, we don't see as much. There aren't groups the same way, like a Wu-Tang Clan or something like that, that really makes headways the same type of way in some ways that sound is almost non-existent unless you think about a group like um or a group like griselda the, the the rappers in buffalo that are doing their thing but they're not necessarily on the quote-unquote mainstream the same way that like a travis scott or someone like that is so i think it'll evolve and continue to evolve over time but to your point yeah it almost it won't be called pop music in the same type of way because i think there still will be a broader hip-hop collective aspect of it but it will be more so seen as just the dominant culture and what you have to do, right? So it's like, okay, we need to pair with a music artist, right? And you're going to look at a Travis Scott or a Drake in the same way that people may have looked at, you know, a Taylor Swift or whoever else before. I think you'll see more of that. And I think that'll continue. So yeah, I, I don't think that we'll see the natural saturation point because i think especially in the u.s there all has always just been an attraction and an influence to what not just hip-hop but more broadly black entertainers have brought to the entertainment landscape and as long as there have roots of that with what is most resonating and popular hip-hop that's going to continue to have influence so you know again going to your your background of like market analysis like how would you uh, evaluate uh, hip hop? I know it's maybe a bit of a, a cheesy question, but you know, going to Rucker's earlier point, you know, there, there, I just business acumen is such like so baked into hip hop culture. You know, it's not just about the music; it's about the fashion, it's about the dancing, it's about the DJing, um, it's about possibly non fungible tokens 
or intellectual property as well. Um, you know, something you've wrote about in your most recent memo. So, you know, how would you kind of think of, you know, hip hop embracing a lot of those things kind of moving forward? Yeah, I, I had a thought about this recently and I said, if there, I wish there was an ETF that is out there um, where people could invest in all of the companies that rely on hip hop culture in some way. And that is a very broad definition, but we also know that that would include a large range of companies, whether it's your Adidas and Nikes, whether it's your major record labels, or it's your other brands and other partnerships. And I think people see that there has been quite a, a bunch of tremendous value built into how people feel connected to this audience and feel connected to this culture. I think you've even seen some of it happen with the app like Clubhouse that I think rose to the levels of popularity that it has in large part because they strategically sought after popular Black entertainers and other people that would be able to help build followings and help get other people from Black Twitter and other places to engage on the app. So I, from an investment perspective, in the same type of way, it is a art form that is worth investing in and still investing in. It's something that people should have been bullish on 30 years ago, less people were. Um, more people are definitely bullish on it now and do get it, which is great. I think that you will always see companies that do it better. There's going to be some cringeworthy demonstrations and ways that it's portrayed and seen as well. But ultimately, I think that the pros of it will outweigh the cons of it as well. And, um, I, and in many ways, I'm excited. I know that in some ways it requires a bit of a mind shift, a mindset shift, because the same way that I looked at hip hop growing up, it was mostly about what music am I most interested in? Like what thing is the most gravitating to me? And part of it's accepting that, hey, this art form can still be powerful, even though it's not for me. One of the most like common conversations out here that give makes me want to roll my eyes sometimes is when someone that's normally, you know, around the same age as me will be like, well, what happened to hip hop the way it was when we grew up or the way it was when this, and it's always, it comes from this, like, you know, old man, like shouting at cloud, like back in my day type of mentality. And it's like, I mean, it just takes such a personal lens where it's like, listen, like, I don't really listen to little Uzi verts music as a person. I mean, but that said, I can still remove myself from that and be like what this guy built with his following and his base and how popular he's been as a rapper is really impressive. And just because that's not what I'm vibing with and, but I can acknowledge that someone who is a teenager now would be really bought into who this is. And I think sometimes that's hard for people to recognize because even with someone like him, it's like, okay, this isn't someone that does interviews. This isn't someone that you're seeing. The most awareness that you probably have is like, why did this man just implant a $24 million pink diamond in his forehead? Like who the hell is this guy? remove all of that. And, you know, you have to recognize that this is someone that is doing their thing the same way that Ludacris or whoever else was seen as the outrageous person in your um, heyday when you were a teenager was doing, you know, their own equivalent of things. Granted, Ludacris wasn't implanting diamonds in his forehead, but he got the point. Going to get your quick take analysis on some recent headlines and trends. Try to keep it short, but some of the questions I have relate to your own newsletters, so it might be difficult to keep it short. The first one, though, Bobby Shmurda's release from prison two days ago. 
Can you explain the context of his imprisonment and why his release means so much to hip hop? So Bobby Shmurda was put in prison towards the end of 2014. I believe there was a conspiracy for a murder charge and some of the things he had actually done were taken from some of the bars he had put in his um, hot song, in his popular song, Hot Boy, that was the hit of the summer in 2014. He was put behind bars for it. And there were many talks about his parole, X, Y, Z. Well, he finally got out and people are excited because this was someone that a lot of people felt wasn't necessarily treated well by his record label, who really didn't side by him during all of his trials and tribulations. And it's tough because on one hand, yes, there are many things that are probably warranted that he did not do best by. However, you were ready to support everything he was going to do and you weren't ready to necessarily back him. So I think a lot of people are happy and, you know, just sad in some ways because he lost some pretty formative years from 20 to 26. But I think that hip hop in general and people are excited to see what's next. And, you know, hopefully he can come back and be rehabilitated and, you know, brought back to the, um, non-incarcerated life in the best way possible. All right, next one. Square's potential acquisition of title. So for everyone who doesn't get your newsletter, can you explain the significance of Jack Dorsey's efforts to woo Jay-Z? This one is something that started as a rumor. Still haven't gotten clarity on that as yet, but a lot of people have been seeing Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey hang out a bit more often together. They uh, recently started a Bitcoin endowment fund together to improve development in Africa. They th This could be an interesting move because Tidal is a company that clearly has value in hip-hop culture. It doesn't have a ton of subscribers. However, could it be acquired for a cheap price, especially for a company like Cash App that has relied on hip hop culture to grow and expand? So you have two companies there and the synergies and just thinking about how Jack Dorsey's thinking about Square, he sees this as his opportunity to build uh, Disney as he's referred to it. So if he has this um, merchant business, he also has this um Cash App business and some of the other things that Cash App may expand to, I could see the opportunity. Uh, I think it's still a rumor, but I do think there's some interesting potential there. Master P and Clubhouse. So you have a unique perspective on this, given your familiarity with tech, VC and hip hop. And ironically, it was your interview with him that made the rounds largely uncredited. Can you explain what he said to you, what the implications are and what your reaction was? Yeah, so Master P, it's funny because at first we weren't talking about Clubhouse. We we're talking about how people don't necessarily all are always willing to bring someone like Master P to the table when they should, when they're making some of these big deals, because he could always find an opportunity to either save people money or make it so that they're not going to just make the other person rich and they don't end up getting their keep. And naturally he then pivoted into Clubhouse because this was when things were really starting to pick up with Clubhouse. And he had said, see, we just made someone else a billionaire. And there was no one necessarily that was benefiting from that. I do think that there is some nuance there just because 
clubhouses backed by Andreessen Horowitz. And I think in large part, it may have some involvement with the cultural um, leadership fund. I know that the partner there, um, Chris Lyons, and then um, Ben Horowitz's wife, Felicia Horowitz, they were some of the folks that were involved in trying to help support and help the company grow. So there are Black folks that are and will benefit from Clubhouse's inevitable exit when it does have one. But it didn't necessarily feel like it had that same type of collectiveness because it didn't come from a Black founder or someone that is truly being of the culture that they are going to build a business and benefit from. And in some ways, you just think about so many of the apps out there, whether it is a company like Spotify, the most popular music streaming genre is hip hop. They have largely benefited from this culture as well. Or you look at the major record labels, especially in the streaming era, all of it stems back on that. So by being able to have a artist or have, you know, someone like Master P realize this in some ways, even probably feel burned by it himself because he is much more of a self-starter entrepreneur and had to have people not willing to buy his product, but they're more willing to buy the more established thing because they feel like it's cool, but they still want to, you know, quote unquote, support black business. He sees that as a bit of an eye roll and frustrating. So yeah, it was a, it was a timely shift and it was another reminder, but we'll see. I think it'll be interesting to watch clubhouse or whatever the next app happens to be. Okay, uh, Dan, this next one comes from uh, Variety. Uh, Scooter Braun enters cannabis business with SPEC, quoted as FOMO is real. Entertainment and tech entrepreneur Scooter Braun is entering the cannabis business through his uh, corporation series Acquisition Corp. It's a special purpose acquisition corporation designed to raise money in the IPO and to have two years to acquire the business. Uh, he's looking for a unique first mover position, in his word. He missed out on the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. And for him, the FOMO is real, end quote. Thoughts? Uh, the FOMO is real thing feels like it's pretty accurate. I mean, if you look at Scooter Braun, the business movies he made recently, so you have this, so it checks all the boxes, right? Legalized cannabis, check. SPAC, special purpose acquisition company, check. Um, and then if you even just think back a bit further, um, the investment that he made in Taylor Swift's Masters, it was kind of one of the earlier ones of this rise of companies like Hypnosis and others that are trying to buy up music catalogs and just leveraging the fact that interest rates are low and streaming data is more abundant and just being able to identify the winners and losers more easily. He he, he was all about that. It's interesting though, to hear him say that because I get it. There's levels to wealth here. Like Scooter Braun, I think has good wealth from a purpose of I managed and got, you know, that 10, 15% cut, whatever it is from managing some of the biggest artists, whether it's Ariana Grande, Demi Lovato, Bieber, Kanye for a minute, XYZ. And he obviously has his own agency, but Scooter doesn't have that like I just took a company public and, you know, here is me, you know, like, you know, whether it's you're like Evan Spiegel or Zuckerberg or one of those, like, so, you know, millionaire, but not billionaire. So that's what I kind of see is like a millionaire that kind of wants that billionaire wealth. I get it. I think a lot of people are doing it, whether it's trying to find something relying on Bitcoin or um, cryptocurrency or NFTs, whatever it is. I think a lot of people are trying to leverage this opportunity right now in this wave of all these things that are happening. Some of them will work. Most of them won't. Not not most of them won't work from the form itself. But I just think naturally these are all things that are more creator led from the ground up. And it's no different than starting a business, right? Most of them are going to fail, but the ones that are going to succeed, you know, they'll probably do quite well. So 
you know, best of luck to him. I think he obviously has some benefits already being in that millionaire club. But even if you're a millionaire, that billionaire status, even though maybe easier than someone starting out, still has its challenges. So one last one before we close it out. Uh, so this one's from TikTok's blog. This is from a couple of days ago. It's meet the first 100 Black creators and music artists joining the TikTok for Black Creatives program. So they're introducing 100 Black creators and emerging music artists for a three-month creator incubator program. They're going to be creating unique, thoughtful videos spanning the arts, music, education, food, beauty, fashion, sports, fitness. Um, it kicked off a couple of days ago with uh, some education programming, including a keynote from Gabrielle Union. It's interesting because obviously I think TikTok has succeeded more so than any of these other companies in the short form video era. It Even though hip hop has been a big focus, I mean, I think, you know, it is, in terms of the percentage of music that's successful on TikTok, hip hop as a genre is either responsible, I think at least for something like the high 50s or low 60s from a percentage perspective. So it's quite high. But in terms of the creators, so that makes you think about it a bit more broadly. When I think about the people that have been most successful on TikTok, whether it's your Charlie D'Amelio's or the people in that hype house, there hasn't really been as many like black people that at least I've seen on like the highest levels of being like a creator rising from the ground up the same way that you may have saw it to a smaller extent with Vine, which Vine really felt like it was a bit more, I don't want to say exclusive, but I feel like obviously, because I was probably paying a little bit more closely attention to it. I could rattle off some of the people that made it big from Vine, but in terms of black creators on TikTok, I think it's a little bit more difficult just because I think that a lot of the people who succeeded as black creators on TikTok were already famous before, whether it was Megan Thee Stallion or The Rock or whoever else, right? So I think it's interesting. I think it makes sense. I think it's obviously a strategic move because I think that if TikTok is able to get some people um, that are successful black creators to be the people they can help support everything, I don't know what the funding necessarily looks like, but it could work out quite well for them too. So yeah, I'm interested to see. I think it makes sense. Awesome. So thanks so much for chatting with us today, Dan. That's us. Everybody check out trapital.co. Sign up for the newsletter. Look for his podcast, Trapital, on all your favorite uh, DSPs. Is there anything else you want to leave for maybe people to say hi to you on socials or anything like that, Dan? Nope, that's it. That was great. Yeah, like like Jason said, um, uh, if you listen to this, I'm sure you like podcasts. So yeah, I interview many of the leading hip hop executives on the Trapital Podcast. We had referenced my interview with Master P um, recently. Check it out. Um, it uh, have a fresh interview coming each week, so you can find it um, T R A P I T A L um, podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dan, for tuning in, and uh, talk soon. All right. Talk soon. Thank you both. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right, subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.